good morning. How's everyone doing? Good? Awesome. It's good to see your faces. It's my privilege and pleasure to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, If you're just joining us, welcome to Redemption Park. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are working our way through the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 5. This morning, as Paul continues to show us uh, the many, many benefits of our justification, not just that we are made and declared righteous, righteous, which is huge, but there are uh, just a storehouse of benefits for our justification. As you're turning there, I was thinking about in this passage... um, Something that happened to me as a senior in high school, my second semester, I got suspended for a day. I got suspended because I was guilty by association. Uh, we were in our cafeteria, and uh, my friend uh, the Taco Bell was in our cafeteria. So uh, we, they were running a promotion where if you got enough stamps on your taco card, you got free tacos. And so my friend thought, if I get the stamp puncher, that's unlimited tacos. I mean, that's the, the logic that was going through his head. So he stole the Taco Bell punch and came and sat down with me. And shortly after that, uh, the, the authorities came, and uh, they uh, took us in. And so that great uh, courtroom of the principal's office uh, determined that he would get a week of uh, suspension and I would get a day. And I was like, what? What?" I mean, I I knew about it, so I probably deserve the day. Um, uh, But actually, it was the best day. I mean, the best day of high school. We went fishing up in the mountains. It was awesome. Uh, And so uh, I I loved it. Uh, But I was thinking about that, just being guilty by association, how uh, if the stakes were a little bit higher, like if I was a good student and magna cum laude was on the line or something like that, or or even more than that, like there was a real crime that was taking place. I mean, I guess that was a real crime. But... um, if like I, I was an accomplice in a murder or something, something like that, man, there would be much more in me that's like, no, I, I, I just because I'm with the guy, I can't be represented by this guy. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, just that, that feeling of guilty by association, especially as uh, most of us coming from a Western individualistic worldview, we're all responsible for ourselves. That, that's, a, that's a tough, tough pill to swallow. Uh, but as we look at this passage today, there's going to, when you start to feel the, the angst in that and you feel the, the tension in uh, how can another represent me, there, there, there's going to be some obstacles that we have to overcome if we're going to see that the purpose of this passage is Paul's continuation from last week to show you the amazing treasures, the jewels of the gospel. But, but as I've already said, there's some obstacles, even cultural obstacles for us to uh, kind of overcome, deconstruct first before we can understand what's going on here. So um, let's put it on the other side here. Have you ever wondered, if you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever wondered how, how is it possible that uh, a Jewish man 2,000 years ago would face a a trial, uh, a condemnation, execution, die on a hill outside of Jerusalem? How is it possible that that death was significant, not just then, and not just to his friends and family, but, but we, we sing about it here, the most significant event in human history. Uh, and it affects me. It doesn't just affect, affect me, it affects you. How, how can his death, and, and as we wrestle with that, we think, well, uh, it has something to do with him being truly God and truly man. It has something to do with his perfect life. But, but still, does that really make sense? How is it that his death could be in our place? I hope you have wrestled with that. 
Uh, because when, when you wrestle with that, you can start to begin to understand what Paul is getting at here. It, it doesn't, in our system, it doesn't really make that much sense. We, we, you may have heard like illustrations before where there, there was a righteous judge and because he was righteous and he also loved his son, but one day he found his son on trial before him and, and because he was righteous, he uh, declared him guilty and gave him the penalty. But because he loved his son, he came down from the, the, the bench and took off his robe and paid the penalty for his son. And we're like, oh, that sounds nice, but that would never happen. How is that possible? Or imagine in this courtroom where, where a, a man is convicted of murder and sentenced to death row, uh, some really, really, really righteous person comes and says, Your Honor, I would like to take his place. They'd be like, No, you don't take his place. Well, um, no, I would like to take, I would like to exchange my life, my perfect life for this murderer's life. In fact, not just his life, I would like to do it for everyone on death row. And in fact, not just everyone on death row, everyone in the entire criminal justice system, I would like to just exchange my life for all of them. Can you let them all go, please? No, no, more than that, everyone who will ever commit a crime and just kind of look to me as their substitute, then I I would like to let them all go. You start to feel like, this seems disproportionate. It seems seems like it doesn't, uh, how, how in the world does that work? I hope you have wrestled with that if you're a follower of Jesus. So that's a, an obstacle we have to overcome. The, the other one is because it comes through our fiercely uh, Western individualistic eyes as we look at this passage. I've already said this passage was meant to encourage you. But when we, it first lands on our hearts, for, for most of us that are from the West, it discourages us. We don't like the idea that that someone else represents us. Someone else's good work or bad work is is somehow in our place. We, um, you know, we, we, we want to stand or fall on our own. But, but even in our Western individual world, there are moments uh, where it, it is clear that uh, someone or something uh, represents the, the whole. So uh, take sports, for example. Uh, if, if you're watching your favorite team and you, your, your favorite player commits some dumb foul, be it in football or basketball, you might yell and scream at that player, but the penalty falls on the whole team. Like, the coaches might get angry, the fans might get angry, but the penalty doesn't fall on the player. There's still going to be a technical free throw shot, or there's going to be a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty uh, applied. So, so we get it in there. But what if it's not just the, the coach that represents or, or an individual player's action? What if, it's, what if it's a fan? Have you ever thought about that? Rick reminded me this week that there's a couple of incidences in baseball where this happened. Uh, 1996 in the, uh, uh, the ALCS, uh, the Yankees were playing the, I believe it was the Baltimore, the Florida Marlins. Baltimore Orioles. See, I don't know who's AL or NL. Uh, but ne- nevertheless, Derek Jeter hits a shot in game one of the series and it goes. And- the crowd is cheering, and it goes, and it goes so all the way to the wall, but about a foot short. But that's okay, because 10-year-old Jeffrey Meyer sticks out his glove and, and reaches over as the uh, Oriole outfielder is about to catch it, and he takes it from him. 
And the, the umpire comes in, rules it immediately. It's a home run. It's a home run. The crowd goes wild. And they're like, yes, we win. They would go on to win that and win the, uh, I believe, win the World Series that year. Uh, and, but, but this kid is celebrated as a hero. He's, he's put on the shoulders of the, like he's going around. They're like, this is awesome. This kid is amazing. He's a hero in the, the city of New York for just taking that in. And, and his one action affected not just the team, but the whole city. Now, if you're a Baltimore Oriole fan in that moment, man, you don't like that. Or, or, or fast forward to uh, 2003, the NLCS. 95 years it had been before, since the, the Chicago Cubs had won a World Series. And they thought, that maybe this is the year we break the curse. Maybe this is it. And so they're up 3-2 in the series. In fact, it's the eighth inning. They're up 3-0 in the eighth inning. And uh, this shot by Florida Marlins. Is that right? Okay. So he hits it. I'm not a baseball guy. I'm, I mean, let's, let's get LeBron in here. Okay. Um, he hits a shot. It's a pop fly. Uh, it's coming towards the wall, but Moises Alou is running over. He's, gonna, he's got a beat on it. This is in Chicago. Uh, this is going to seal the deal. Top of the eighth. And um, as, as it's coming down by the fans, all the fans would do what you and I would do. They start clamoring for the ball. It just so happens to, land, to come right to a guy named Steve Bartman. Lifelong, lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. Loves it. Front row, ready. This is the moment. The break of the curse is here. And so he reaches up and he knocks the ball away from Moises Alou, who would have got the out. The, the fans start screaming at him. They're spitting at him. They're throwing the security had to come in and escort him out. Moises Alou loses his mind. He's like, I would have had this, would have been out. Uh, the Cubs lose their mind. The pitcher loses his mind. They give up eight runs in that inning. They lose series tied. They lose the next day. They lose. They don't go to the World Series. Steve Bartman, lifelong Chicago, Bear, Chicago Bears, probably also that, Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, is seen as the villain in the whole city. He has to move out of his city because it, it, it was, he was so infamous. One action affects the whole city. And, and when you watch these videos on YouTube, you can see them. Uh, the, the comments are, man, just how unfair, how unfair, how unfair that is. That, that the action of one could affect the many. But, but even, again, even in our culture, there are other incidences uh, where we uh, have this kind of representation. We have a, a, a representational democracy, for example. We, we vote, and, and those that go get the, the votes go and are meant to represent us. So if you're an American, that's true. And, but but there's, been, there's been this phrase, maybe you've said it, and if you did, I'm about to call you dumb. Uh, but... There's this phrase where it doesn't matter on what side of the spectrum politically you're on because it's, it's happened on both where someone gets elected as president and then the other side says, not my president. And I say, are you an American? Yes. Well, then you're dumb because that is your president. <laughs> he represents us. Whether you like it or not, that is your president. Are you a Christian? You should pray for that president, by the way. FYI. And so uh, we say, not my president. No, because we don't like to be represented. But, but Paul's going to show us that in this passage, passage we, we, we can either be represented by one kingdom or the other. 
We all start being represented by one kingdom, but, but there is good news. There, there is another king and another kingdom that, that you can be represented by. But it, in fact, it is good news that Adam is our representative, uh, and we'll see that in a moment, even though we don't like it uh, because he, it lays the foundation for the second Adam, Jesus, to be our representative. And this is why his death on the cross can spread to all. That would come to him. So this passage, uh, Romans 5, it's short, but it's theologically dense. It's thick. And so I'm going to ask you to just kind of love God with your mind today a little bit. That there's a lot in here. Uh, But again, remember the purpose. It's meant to encourage you. It's meant to uh, stir your affections for Christ. Um, If I can cover three theological terms that... Maybe you're, you're familiar with, maybe not, uh, in this, in this thing, uh, then I've, I've succeeded. I'm gonna skip over a lot, so you might have more questions than answers today. But there's three terms. I'll put them on the screen here. Uh, first one is federal headship, original sin, and active obedience. Federal headship, original sin, and active obedience. So I was talking to my girls last night, and I said, do you guys know what federal headship is? And Zoe says, no, I don't, but it sounds like something I wouldn't like. And I was like, well, you're part partially right. But I, I want you to come to love it, actually, uh, by the end of the sermon. And then I said, you know what original sin is? And they gave the right answer for that. So I was happy about uh, pastor kids there. Uh, and then active obedience. And so uh, we'll, we'll kind of cover those things here. Again, this is a comparison of the tale of two Adams is where Paul is going to go here this morning. He wants to compare and contrast and lay the foundation for some gospel joy for us. So Let's look at it together. Verse 12 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, so therefore, in light of everything he said last week, and I hope you were here last week. In fact, Romans, if there is a series that you should prioritize showing up at church, a little plug, it's this one, because they build on each other. And if you miss one, then you, you could miss some significant steps on the process. But he says, therefore, in light of all that he said in the, the benefits of our justification. He says, just as, so he's going to make a comparison. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in your Bible, there's probably a dash there because you would think he would conclude his thought, but, but he has to stop for the next five or six verses and just unpack that a little bit. He's going to conclude his thought in verse 18. So he'll come back to that. But he, he basically points us to Adam and he says, look, just as Adam's sin uh, unleashed uh, just a, a torrent of sin in the world, it came to Adam, came through Adam, and, and then through Adam, came death and death spread everywhere. Adam represented all of humanity. We'll talk about that in a moment. It says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So in my Bible, I underline a type of the one who was to come. What, what Paul is saying is uh, Adam, in some way, shape, or form, is a precursor, a, a signpost to Jesus. 
Now, uh, that, that should sound a little bit alarming. It's, it's actually going to alarm Paul a little bit. So he's, he's going he's gonna to first show us all the ways that he's not like Jesus, just in case there's any confusion there. But what but, but I want you to point, see is that he was a type, that, that there are really two Adams. There's the first Adam uh, in the garden, and then there's the second Adam. The first Adam had one command, obey me in this and you will be blessed. But we know the story. We know what happened. And what Paul is saying is that he represented us. There was a federal headship in Adam that represented you and me. Say, so, well, okay, what, what, does, what, what does he really mean? Does, that, does he just mean that um, we're all like Adam? Like, like we, Adam sinned, and then we sin, and then, uh, you know, in that way, we're, we're like our first father? That's not what he means. That's true, but that's not what he means. What he means is that Adam was our federal head. Look at verse 12 again. It says, uh, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, now, I don't do this very often, but um, I remember a professor in seminary tell me this, that, that in, the, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it's a poetic language. So the theology is built into the poetry or the narrative. So you follow that and you get the theology. But in the New Testament, written in Koine Greek, it, it, Greek it's, a, it's a technical, like an engineer's language. So the theology is built into the specifics of the grammar and the words and the very, very details of every word. And, and sometimes that becomes very, very important. When I was learning Czech, when we were learning Czech, we, we learned uh, the Czech had, for example, for, in their nouns, seven cases for every noun. So that meant every, every noun that you said, there was actually 14, whether it's plural or singular, there were 14 different ways to say the word. And, and if, depending on how you ended the word or started the word, it had completely different meaning. I was pretty good at memorizing the root word. I could, I could cram words into my head. I was terrible at putting them into the right tense. And so I couldn't communicate that very well. But my wife, she, was, she had, and my children, because they went to school in the Czech schools, they just innately knew, like, I'm going to put this ending on here when, in this circumstance. I never got that. But, but we'd, I'd be out with my wife, she'd be speaking in Czech, and she'd be like, Mark, what's the word for this? And I'd give her the word, and then she would conjugate it and, and make it good. But I, I just like, I couldn't do that. The same thing in, in, in Greek, that there are uh, seven tenses for the ver- verbs. So depending on the tense of the verb, it means something different. So we could say that, that well, what, what he means by this is that um, we, we are all just like Adam. We all sin. And, and that's true. We've all ratified Adam's decision a million times in our own life. But that's not what Paul is saying. And if Paul meant that we are all like Adam, he could have used something called the, the, the perfect or, uh, yeah, the, the perfect or the uh, present or imperfect. Ah, I forget my Greek now. The present or the imperfect tense. But that's not what he uses. He reaches and uses a very specific tense. He uses the aorist tense. So those of you that know some Greek, the aorist tense always points to a single past action. Always points to a single past action. So read that again in that line. So death spread to all men because all sinned. So in Adam, when sin entered the world, you sinned. 
I sinned. And again, there's something in us that raises up and says, no, that's not fair. But it lays the foundation for the gospel. You wouldn't be the first to say it's not fair. Pelagius was a fourth century monk from Britain. He had moved down to Rome. And in Rome, he, this was shortly after Constantine had converted to Christianity and made Christianity illegal, stopped the persecution. And Pelagius had seen uh, the Christians before, the, before Constantine and after Constantine. And he just noticed that the Christians that where it cost them something to follow Christ had a, a zealousness to their faith, had some, had some holiness to their lives. But, but now that it was open to all and Romans were coming in droves into the church, he noticed that many of them just had no lifestyle that reflected, uh, reflected Christian values, Christian teaching. And so he wanted to bring back personal responsibility. And so Pelagius said, you know what? Uh, everyone has complete free will. In fact, no one is born with sin. No, everyone is born like a, a blank slate. And, and if you do it right, and you must do it right, you can earn your own righteousness. You can make your own way to heaven. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Romans at all, you should know that that is heresy. That is heresy. If there was any free will, it was, it was destroyed, in a sense, in the garden. When sin entered into the world, Adam what became a slave to sin in all of his generations thereafter. And so, thank God for church history, a man by the name of Augustine stepped up and he said, no. Romans chapter 5, and he points out, he says, we were born in sin. We are by nature children of wrath. We all have this bent. There's a crookedness. And, and Augustine says, you have free will insofar as your free will. Your heart will always choose what your heart wants. But the problem is in a fallen world with sin nature, with original sin standing, your heart wants rebellion. Your heart wants, uh, your heart wants the things that are not of God. And so we always are choosing what, what are the ways that we can rebel. He, he, said, he points to Jeremiah and says, God needs to give you a new heart. God, God needs to give you a, a, a new mind. God needs to put a new spirit within you. And so Augustine says, listen, what we need is not trying harder and choosing the right way and earning our way to heaven. What we need is the gospel. What we need is his righteousness and not our righteousness. And so Augustine sets the church free from that bondage. But Pelagianism finds its way in the church all the time. This is why as a pastor, I would hope that you guys would study some church history because there are so many church movements that people are like, hey, I think this, and this sounds good, and this applies to, to uh, this appeals to our kind of American individualism. And we could stand on the shoulder of the giant Augustine, or we could try to just be like, well, that does sound good. No, we have no righteousness in ourselves. We are born into sin. Adam was our head, and in him we all sinned, eris tense. No one is born clean. And so sin and death come in and, and wreak havoc in the world. So, so we've seen that. You can turn on the news and you can see that, that this is a good explanation of the reality of what you turn on when you turn on CNN or, or whatever. That there is a brokenness, a sickness, a suffering and death in this world. It was all ushered in by Adam. So Paul's going to compare and contrast. He's going to start with, just in case you uh, think too closely of Adam and Jesus, he's going to start with some contrasts. Verse 15, 
He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. He's going to compare the free gift. This is the gospel, what what Christ did for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection uh, compared to Adam in the garden, his trespass. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died, though through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So he's comparing. In Adam, there is trespass, but in Christ, there is a free gift. No strings attached. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following the trespass brought justification. So the results are condemnation or justification. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He says... In Adam, there's trespass. In Christ, there's a free gift. In Adam, there's condemnation. In Christ, there's justification. In Adam, death reigns. In Christ, righteousness reigns. In Adam, judgment is deserved. And in Christ, we get undeserved grace. Did you also notice some of the language? It was always, there is more in Christ. Much more. Abounding. More. It says, don't confuse Adam and Jesus in that. Where are they comparable then? Well, Paul picks up his thought from verse 12 back in verse 18. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, the question might be, uh, when he says all men, does he mean all men? Is, this, is he teaching all of a sudden uh, universalism? But again, this is where context matters. The very previous verse talks about much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. So he's not, he's not talking about that. 55 times in, in, in Romans, he's going to either use the word pisteo or pistis, belief or, or faith. And he's going to say that the importance is trusting in Christ. So he's not talking universalism. He's just saying that the power of the cross is sufficient for all men, for those that come to him. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The, the reason why it's such good news that Adam was our federal head, even though we don't like that. Uh, my daughters again last night at the dinner table last night were like, I don't like Eve. She's terrible. Can't believe what she did. And I was like, well, you can, would you do better? No, no, you wouldn't. These, Adam and Eve were created to be your representative. They were created without sin, and they still sin. But the fact that God works in the idea, the, the concept of federal headship in Adam is actually tremendously good news because it opens the door that we can have a different federal head. We can have someone else represent us and not just us, but the whole world, all that would turn to him. This is what Paul is getting at here in headship of Jesus. This is what he said in this last paragraph. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There's two kingdoms. But what he says, where there's a comparison is that, that each atom represent a, a vast swath of humanity. 
You're either in the kingdom of Adam where sin, death, sickness, disease, and suffering reigns, or you've been brought into the kingdom of Christ where righteousness, grace abound. Look at verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That, that word grace abounded is, would be literally translated grace superabounded. <laughs> He's just saying, even though as far-reaching, as, as, as devastating as Adam's sin is, and we all feel it, we all suffer, we all have sickness, we, we go to funerals, we, we see the, the far huge impact of Adam. He says, Christ is more. That there's more in Christ. This is the beauty of headshot, headship. So take basketball, for example. Say you go to a game and uh, they, they pull you down out of the stands and they say, hey, we're going to give you $10 million if you hit this three-pointer. You're like, yeah, get, let, let me have it. However, if you miss it, you have to do the rest of your life hard labor in Siberia. Stakes have just increased quite a bit. You're like, well, I, I don't know if I can hit this shot. Maybe I can hit this shot. They're like, well, it's Okay. I heard this illustration this week by a preacher. He said, now imagine in that moment, they said, well, we're going to bring Steph Curry out, one of the NBA's best three-point shooters in history, and he can take the shot for you. I mean, in that moment, who, who are you having to take the shot? <laughs> are you going to do the $10 million or you going to have Steph Curry? And said, this is, this is headship. But, but then I thought about it. Actually, no, it's better than that. It isn't just that, uh, it's both worse and better than that. Because, because the reality would be more like, hey, actually Adam already took the shot for you. He bricked it so bad, he bent the rim, no one's going to hit a shot. No, no one can hit this shot. You're like, oh, great. But it's okay. Actually, there's a second Adam. Jesus came and he hits every shot he takes. He alone can hit the shot. In fact, uh, you, you don't even need to have him come and hit the shot. He already hit the shot. So if you want that shot to count for you, just say, yeah, and, and you, go, you go this way. And we're like, yeah, I would take that. that that's the shot. I want the shot that's already been shot. It was hit every time. That's what, like, in that case, we would celebrate headship. Yes, we're like the Yankee fans with Jeffrey. Yes, Jesus hit the shot. But there's something else, the last word that I had on there that I, I want you to see in here that's just a, that Paul wants to encourage us with. And I, I'm encouraged by it because I'm not like this. It says, for by the one man's disobedience, I look at my life in the time of a confession of sin. I'm like, man, there is still this current of disobedience in my heart, my mind, my soul. But for the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is what theologians call the active obedience of Christ. This is beautiful. Um, This is a matter of life and death. When you read the Gospels, you're not just reading the story of Jesus. What Paul is getting at here is, if Jesus is your head, you're reading your story. When Jesus comes from heaven in glory and takes on flesh and he starts his ministry, he goes and first gets baptized by John. Why did he get baptized? He says, well, it's to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Not because he needed righteousness. He had righteousness because we needed righteousness. And as he comes out of the water, well, what happens? The, the father's voice booms from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
when you read that, brothers and sisters, because of the act of obedience of Christ, that voice that booms is saying that over you. This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. When when we stumble and fall, Jesus never stumbles and falls. When, when uh, When we're unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. Adam is given one command. If you obey this command, you will be blessed. Jesus says, uh, God says to the son, if you obey me in this, there will be suffering, there will be death, there will be agony. And he chose to obey. When Jesus goes and feeds the 5,000, you fed the 5,000. When Jesus opens the eyes of the blind and, and gives spiritual water to the thirsty, you've done that. When Jesus comes to his disciples in the garden at night and they're, they're tired and he says, can you just stay up and can you just pray for me in this moment? We fall asleep, but, but in Christ we don't. Christ says, Father, your will be done. And he, st- and he gets up and he walks in that will. And we get up with him and we walk with him in that. And when he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our sin, and exchanges his life for ours because of the active obedience of Christ, all of his meritorious good works get credited to our account. So you didn't just need to be forgiven. You needed to have all of his goodness. Uh, J. Gretchen Machen, who was the founder of Western Theological Seminary in, in Philadelphia, just loved, loved, loved this doctrine the active obedience of Christ. On his deathbed, he sent a telegram to his friend. These are his last words. He says, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. He knew. He knew that in Christ, all the meritorious work of Christ would be applied to him and that God the Father would have to let him in and enter into the glory of the kingdom. So, how are we to respond to a passage like this? I think, again, this is meant for our good news. This is meant to let Christ reign, renew, and restore us. Though Adam's sin is devastating and far-reaching, Christ has more power to save than Adam's ability to ruin We just see this in this passage time and time again. The second Adam's better. The second Adam's impact is more. What Adam did can be overturned. What Christ did can never be overturned. Once you leave that kingdom for this kingdom, you are in for good. And then I I wrote this down this week, maybe kind of a summary of the whole thing. It says, we are born into sin, but the good news is we can be born again. We are born into sin, but the good news is we can be born again. That, that offer is to anyone here that is still in the kingdom of Adam, characterized by sin, death, and destruction. You can change the kingdom today. By grace through faith, you can turn to Christ and he will welcome you home and he will give you all of his good works and all of his life in your life. So as a church, let us be a people that remember Rejoice and rest in this truth this week. We're going to be tempted to forget which kingdom we belong to. We're going to be tempted to act like we still belong to the other kingdom. So let's remember. And then let's look to Christ. Let's read the Gospels. Let's think of his perfect life and rejoice that that is now our perfect life. And then finally, let's rest.
Let's rest in it. He strives so we don't have to. His righteousness is ours. And in him, we get to rest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that your word reminds us in Revelation that before the creation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain for us. You knew that you would do a rescue mission for us. So even though Adam was our head and he sinned in our place, you had a plan to rescue and redeem us from before creation. Lord, I pray that uh, we would rejoice, rest, and renew our minds and our hearts to this truth this week. Holy Spirit, just bring this truth to our hearts whenever we're tempted to trust in ourselves or tempted to walk in a manner not worthy of the gospel. Holy Spirit, remind us of your truth this week. In Jesus' name, amen.